0: All right, good morning. Good morning. This morning we start a brand new series called Bless This Mess. And the idea is this is God's design for your family, that everyone has a family. And uh, whether it's big or small, near or far, whether you have little kids, grown kids, no kids, you want kids. what we know is that everyone has a family and they are all uh, dysfunctional. Mary Carr said, I think a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. And I think that's uh, funny to us, but it's true that dysfunction comes when a relationship happens. Dysfunction comes when family happens. And and there are already people in the room that are thinking, maybe this isn't for me. You don't know my life situation. I I really don't have a whole lot of family interaction. Well, guess what? Everyone is here uh, to hear something. And whether it's for you specifically, for your future family, for someone you love who needs to hear it, Everyone here is in some sort of family uh, structure, whether that's your immediate family, an extended family, in-law family, your church family, your work family, Uh, all of the things we're going to talk about for the next five weeks actually apply broadly uh, to all relationship, and we're going to talk about them in the context of family and how that matters, but there's absolutely uh, stuff to pull out of that and to apply in every other area of life. And so over the next five weeks, our aim is to undo the illusion of the ideal family and get down to what's real. And in doing so, our hope is to provide practical ways that every family can get closer to God's design for a happier and healthier family. And right on the front end, I will give a uh, a shout-out to Andy Stanley. Uh, So much of what we're going to talk about, especially these first two weeks, comes out of some really incredible practical teaching that was uh, helpful as we put all of this together. And so Andy Stanley, who is surely listening, uh, thank you so much. Next week, uh, what we're going to do is actually talk about uh, one question— that can revolutionize your family and so this week we're, we're going to start this whole real and ideal family idea as we talk about uh, the mess that we're all in uh, big or small and then next week this one question that will revolutionize your family can revolutionize your marriage will revolutionize every relationship if you can grasp and apply the one question that we're going to go through next week and so you want to be here for that there are a lot of opinions of what makes uh, happiness in a family Uh, George Burns, comedian George Burns said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city, which is funny for us because we have a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city, and um, although we're not happy to be far from them, we are really happy here, so you do the math. Um, Okay, so the Old Testament, as we look through it, is not really a good example uh, for family, as you look through the Old Testament, you, you walk through uh, the early days of Scripture in the early biblical history that we have, there aren't a whole lot of great examples of what makes a great family. In fact, uh, the first family we get to see is not exactly the most uplifting template. It started with Adam and Eve, and all they did in the garden was usher in sin and brokenness and death into the world. So that's not so good. And then uh, in chapter 3, Um, That all happens and then they have kids, right? So if you're in genesis and you're you're like on page three of your bible They have kids cain and abel and cain and abel introduce murder into the world And so within uh, the first three pages of the bible the very first family that we have access to in scripture We've heard that not only have they introduced sin and brokenness and death into the world, but then murder uh, Is actually there as well I don't know. Maybe for you that's encouraging today Maybe you can go home and be like hey, honey We're not perfect, but at least we didn't introduce sin and murder to the world and so then the New Testament shows up, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus starts doing wild and radical things. This is, is absolutely revolutionary, the way that he approached family, the way that he talked about people, uh, the way uh, that he addressed women and children. He starts with children. He says, bring them to me. He tells his followers that you can actually learn from them, and you should learn like them. You have to understand that in that culture, children were basically one step above livestock. And yet Jesus says, don't send them away, bring them closer. Jesus says that we should be like children, which is absolutely scandalous. Jesus includes women in his teaching circle. They were accessories in the culture, and Jesus holds them up as sisters capable of learning and leading. Paul comes in among the brightest minds in his culture. He had incredible training, the equivalent of of going to Harvard or Yale and getting uh, top honors and graduate degrees. He comes into this tough culture, a Greek-thinking, Roman-behaving culture, not unlike ours, except very little of what was done was done behind closed doors. It was just open in its depravity. And Paul introduces a revolutionary thinking. And to you, it's going to sound old-fashioned or mundane because it's sort of become ubiquitous church-speak. But it's radical, and it's still, in many cultures, rejected. It's so radical that even Christians have kind of pushed back against it over the years, I married a couple recently that said, whatever you do, please don't use this concept. Please don't use this scripture in the wedding. And I was like, well, I, I don't have to use it, but it is sort of the basis for a biblical family. Um, and they said, yeah, yeah, but it just, please don't use it. It felt regressive to them in a progressive world. Before we get to what that is, I want us to recognize something together. That in the Christian worldview, women and children thrive. Women and children thrive in the Christian worldview worldview and we have a fractured world as it relates to uh, the christian worldview people think it is regressive people think it is backwards people think of it as old-fashioned and yet when you look at where women and children thrive it is when the christian worldview is lived out where the christian worldview falls away look who suffers not just in a repressive third world environment not just in uh, isis controlled region of the middle east we're talking about in our 21st century america If you look where the family is crumbling, where marriage is thrown away, look who suffers. Overwhelmingly, disproportionately, it is women and children. Who is most impacted in divorce? Who is most likely to slip into poverty or face violence? It's women and children. It's women and children. These days, 39% of first through 12th graders are fatherless. Fatherless four times more likely to end up in poverty. The kids who don't have an active father presence in their life living in their home are four times more likely to find themselves in poverty. Not not 4%, four times. They're two times more likely to drop out. A radically higher likelihood of teenage pregnancy, a radically higher likelihood of drug use, of suicide. Of all the cultural ills that we're fighting in the younger generations, they have a strong correlation so much that secular scientists Social scientists look and say, it is such a strong correlation that it would be impossible not to imply causation. In a home where the Christian worldview is lived out, it serves to protect women, protect children. For some people, there's pain here. Because you're like, you know, I'm one of those people that grew up in that environment. Some of that stuff happened to me. Other people are thinking, I grew up in a Christian house, or at least a nominally Christian house. We went to church. It didn't protect me from anything. There was still abuse. There was still neglect. I would say that it isn't the problem of the worldview or the ideal. It's the problem that it wasn't actually lived out in reality. Colossians 3.18. Scripture says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is this widely scandalized passage, along with a passage in Ephesians that we'll talk about next week. This is the widely scandalized passage. It has this word submit in there. Paul summarizes this in a way that I think is helpful for us, and we'll put it on the screens. Paul says it's basically these these four things is what he's really doing in the New Testament. And so all of family dynamics as it relates in the New Testament is summarized in these four things. The first is husbands, uh, love your wives and be considerate. The second is wives, submit to your husbands. Third is children, obey your parents. And fourth is fathers, don't exasperate your children. These are the ideals that that Paul lays out. Half of which, if you'll notice, half of which are radical challenges to men to honor their wives and children. Half of the New Testament challenge in the family is to the men. And we've just said that fatherlessness, absent men, is a major issue in our culture, and Paul says, yeah, it's always been a major issue. Next week, we're going to talk about husbands loving your wife like Christ loves the church. So much so as to give your life. We're going to talk about submission, and we're going to get to this one question that I think will revolutionize your marriage, that will revolutionize your relationships. But, But fathers, Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, don't exasperate your kids. Don't stir them up to anger. Be an encouragement. It's saying be an active, positive force. You use your phone, your GPS, your maps app, or whatever you have to get from one place to another. It helps you by giving you directions on on the right way to go. And so many uh, parents, so many, especially dads these days, so many of us parent in, in sort of the inverse way, where we don't actually help our kids know where to go, we, we would be like a GPS just telling us where not to turn. Don't turn right here. Don't turn left there. And like, like that's, that's not how it works. It's upon us to give direction and, and provide a, an idealized destination, and then to help guide towards that, to be an active, positive force and an encouragement towards that end. And as as parents, so often we're so afraid of ruining things, we're so afraid of, of messing things up, or we're just so tired from the daily rigors of life that we're not actually positively encouraging towards a destination. We're just trying to keep the train on the tracks. But those are the four things. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, fathers don't exasperate your children. And some of you in this room are saying right now, you're going, Do you know my kid? wives are saying uh, submit to this guy are you sure have you seen him in action husbands are going you want me to give my life you want me to like to consider her do you know how she treats me what you're saying uh, in so many words is get real and i would say exactly paul is laying out the ideals and there's always a gap between the real and the ideal and so there's a slide that's going to show us what that looks like greg needle pointed this as well very well done greg Right? This is, there's a gap. There's a gap and there's a journey. Between the real and the ideal, there's a, there's a gap. Just because the journey is hard, we don't abandon the ideal, though. Just because the journey is difficult, just because the, the lessons are difficult to employ, just because, man, this is a lot of work, doesn't mean we give up the idea that we want to find that ideal eventually. And so where we find ourselves is all these little points along the way, all these little X's. We're going to find ourselves. And I don't know where you are in your your walk as a family, in your walk as a couple, in your walk as a child or a grandparent. I don't know where you are. But maybe the first one's counseling. Maybe one of them is is like total estrangement. Maybe one is, hey, I think we're going to make it, and then it drops off the cliff again, and you go, gosh, I didn't see that coming. But we all find ourselves somewhere on this graph in our life. And we have the opportunity and really the responsibility not to give up on moving up and to the right, up and to the right, that every decision we make, every day that we wake up, we're saying, I am not willing to settle for where I am in this valley, for where I am down at the bottom left. Everywhere Jesus goes, he raises standards and deepens grace. Grace. Something we learn is everywhere Jesus goes, he raises standards and deepens grace. And so what we're going to find is that people come to Christ and they go, well, tell us how this all works. And Jesus just keeps raising the standard for what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a family, what it means to be a child. And he keeps raising standards. And people, us, we resist that. I can't live out this ideal. Are you kidding me? Do you know me? Do you know my wife? That's what people think. And yet every time Jesus raises standards, what we're going to see is he raises uh, and deepens grace as well. So in the the story about uh, the woman, well, that's later, in the story about adultery, right? Jesus is speaking to people about adultery, and they say, well, you know, adultery, what is that? And he goes, I tell you the truth, anybody who looks at a woman with less than his heart has committed adultery. Talk about raising the standard. Jesus, what is adultery? Well, any man who's looked at another woman with less than his heart has committed adultery. And immediately, guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Immediately, none of us gets out of this trap. The most perfect man in the room can't sneak out of that. Jesus raises the standard. He goes, It isn't about your behavior, it's about your heart. No joke, totally honest. I'm preparing this sermon you know how your email in the corner of your screen when a new email comes in and the little window pops up and says you got a new email and it just gives you like the preview who it's from in the first line of the email i'm writing this part of the sermon kind of putting my notes together i'm thinking yeah you know this is a good one no one who's even looked at a woman lustfully is safe from this one i'm feeling pretty righteous at the moment and the email that comes up on the top right of the screen just pops over real nice it says victoria's secret sale and it's like 50% off, and the prices are 50% off. And I'm like, well, we got a choice here, right? Like, like, this is not accidental. That even when you're thinking about it, the attack is constant. And I go home, and I was like, wow, why are we getting these emails? Remember we bought those pajama pants online one time, and now you get 73 emails a day. And I'm like, well, this is good. So be careful what you buy. Jesus isn't worried about our behavior. He's worried about our heart. And every time he raises a standard, the grace is deepened with it. He holds the ideal and refuses at the same time to condemn those who fall short. This is what's important. He holds this ideal up, and yet he refuses to condemn those who fall short. That's what grace is. Not only do you not get what you deserve, which is the punishment for the crime, but you get what you don't deserve, which is a reward on the back end. My wife is very good at getting pulled over. If you uh, if you know the local sheriffs or police officers, please give them a nice word on our behalf. They've been very sweet to her. She gets pulled over um, more than everyone combined. She also never gets a ticket. I don't know what she does. I don't know if she cries or she just bats. You know, she's putting lipstick on right as they get up to the window. Well, I don't know what she does. But she always gets out of tickets. And, you know, she'll send me a picture. I'll get a text, and it's just, you know, like police lights in the rearview mirror kind of picture. Oh, here we go again. And sure enough, five minutes later got out of that one, or like, he let me go. I was only going 70 over, you know? (laughs) She gets mercy every time she gets pulled over. She doesn't get what she deserves. She deserves a ticket. She doesn't get it. The difference between mercy and grace, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, grace is what you get that you don't deserve. So it's as if uh, she gets mercy from the police officer. If he took out his wallet and handed her a hundred dollar bill and said, have a nice day, ma'am, that would be grace. Mercy is not getting the ticket. Grace is getting the gift. Okay. There's a woman adulteress that that Jesus runs into, and he doesn't say keep sinning, right? He says stop sinning, but he also tells her to go and keeps her from being stoned. So he stops her condemnation in the culture, and yet he still holds the standard up for her. He doesn't say, oh, you've had a hard life, I understand, just sorry. He takes care of both. He says the standard is still here, and yet I'm going to make sure that you don't get stoned in this. And so your job, as he sends her off, is to keep going up and to the right, keep working towards the ideal grace for where you are and eyes for where you're going that's what you're aiming for you're aiming for grace where you are today and eyes for where you want to be eventually he looks at her and he basically says you've given up chasing the ideal and you've settled for the pit the pit of i guess this is just going to be good enough one of our biggest fears is failure and a lot of us fail, uh, we fear failing to live this ideal life. We're so afraid that we, we move the goals. We move the goals of, of what ideal actually is or what we're actually aiming for. And so what we actually do is we start pulling back what ideal should be, and we figure out wherever we are, whatever X we were on the graph, we go, well, that sh- that's, that's the new goal. Let's just be here. The, so the question becomes, can we embrace an ideal that we'll never actually perfectly live up to? Can we live in that tension? Greg Popovich is famous for always telling his assistant coaches and his players it's supposed to be hard. And they're doing hard work to get to an ideal. 32 NBA teams, 30 NBA teams, one wins so when they're struggling, when they're on a losing streak, when they're failing, when they're in the playoffs and they're down in game seven, and he looks at them and over and over in the tapes and the stories you hear from his assistants, they, they say, Pop always reminds us, it's supposed to be hard. That getting from here to there isn't easy, but it's worth it. If we care about the ideal, then we'll fight through it. Over and over again in your marriage and your family and your life with your children, we need that reminder. We need Popovich to come into our huddle and go, hey, for, don't forget, it's supposed to be hard. Because guess what's not hard is settling. Settling right where you are is not hard. I'm just going to be who I'm going to be. This is the best I'm going to do. This is all I'm going to do. But God has something better than that for us. We're so afraid of failure, we just move the goal. It's our choice. As we look at the mess of family, either we attempt to get closer to God's best for our family or we sit in the carnage and be okay with blech. Carrie Newhoff says, change refuses to make peace with the status quo. If you're hungry for change, for better, for more, for ideal, that means you have to refuse to make peace with the status quo. Jesus refuses to lower standards. In fact, he raises them. Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Pharisees are asking Jesus about no-fault divorce, which in the culture was uh, kind of the rule. A man can drop his wife for no reason. She has no rights. She's just a possession. You want a new possession? Get a new possession. And Jesus goes back, and when they ask him this question, they try to pin him down. Jesus goes, no, no, no. In the beginning. Jesus says, guys, this was never the plan. Jesus goes, We've lowered the standard because of the way that we've been behaving. And we just said, well, if this is the way it's going to be, let's just keep lowering the standard. And Jesus goes, in the beginning, which is a way of saying, in the design, the way that God created this, the ideal that God set forward is that they would never be separated. And so they're like, yeah, but is a divorce lawful or not? And Jesus goes, "Uh uh-huh. Still thinking about it. Is it lawful or not lawful, Jesus? And he goes, in the beginning, up and to the right. Jesus confronts us to ask whether we've exchanged God's ideal for a lesser version of life. Like the rules got tough, and so we made new rules. And I know this is hard. Some of us in the room checked out when I said less. They're like, oh, not going there. Others hear divorced and they're like, wait, is this about me? No. It's easy to check out here. It's easy to have shame or guilt or feel condemned. And we're here, and we're taking this journey. Jesus offered his life so that no matter how far, we fall short, that none of us would experience that condemnation. Remember grace where we are and eyes for where we're going. If your marriage is a one out of ten on the ten scale, a ten being perfect, if your marriage is a one right now and you're like, look man, it is so much work, you don't even know. It's supposed to be hard. This is like a miracle to get us to a two, much less a ten. You're in the right place. Because we're not going to exchange the ideal that God designed us for for the lesser version, the lower standard. His grace means that we can keep the ideal as our goal and our hope and as many times as we fail in reaching that ideal the grace covers that and we march on. About that option to redefine the standard culture is creating a new normal every day. Every day there's a new normal culturally in what family looks like and what marriage looks like and all of these things. To rest in biblical truth says that's not an option for us. People who suffered broken relationships don't hope for broken relationships for their kids. People in dysfunction don't want that for their children. And yet so many of us are willing to just drop down the standard and go, well, this is just what we're going to be. And we pray for our kids to live in unbroken relationships. We would love for our children to have ideal marriages. And the reality is, we need to start praying that for ourselves. We need to hold ourselves to the ideal that we hope for in others. Being honest about whether we've exchanged our hopes for our family for something culture deems attainable or at least acceptable. So then, refusing to change the truth, desiring, no matter where reality is for you and your family relationships today, we resolve to live one step closer to ideal. This is what Easter was about last week. You fall short, Jesus takes the cross. Punishment is on him, your death is gone. Mercy, you don't get what you deserved. He rose from the dead and we live in that life, life, life without death. The reward that we didn't earn is called grace. And so we can live without fear of failing where aiming for God's design isn't something we avoid because of our fear of falling short. He's already got it covered. And so the challenge for five weeks for us that I hope five weeks turns into the rest of our lives, the challenge is that we would live fearlessly and love relentlessly, that we would embrace the tension of the in-between. We would embrace the tension of the in-between because so many of us look at ideal and go, ugh, come on, you're not going to hold me to that, are you? And the tension that we're to live with is absolutely, Jesus is going to hold you to that. Because he wants it for you. You were designed for it. It is the good life. And every inch you move up the graph, every step you take up the mountain, you're that much closer to the peak. None of us are ideal yet, but all of us can commit to moving closer to that every day. Life in God's grace is the joyous journey from real to ideal. Life in God's grace is the joyous journey From real to ideal, I'm getting closer, and when I fail, it's covered. It's supposed to be hard. He has transformed our eternities and our lives from broken to whole, from death to life. We can be people who aim for transformation in our families as well. For every family, no matter how broken it is or how long it's been that way, to find God's beauty and life restored. Carrie Newhoff again says, transformation happens when what's new becomes so embedded in your culture, or I would say in your family, that it's now normal. Do you want transformation in your life or your family's life, in your marriage life, in your relationship with your kids, with your grandparents, with your office staff, with your church family? Do you want transformation? Transformation happens when what's new, ideal, becomes so embedded in your family, in your culture, in your home, in your relationships, in your life, that it now becomes normal. That's how you go from one X to the next X. Is the new normal, is the new normal, and we try again and we aim for transformation again and we grab a new normal and we go, gosh, this is better. I can't ever imagine going back there. This is the journey that we're going to be on. From real to ideal. Are you willing to join that with me? Let's pray. God, we are uh, very real. We would confess to you that uh, none of us fit the bill. None of us have uh, perfected life or relationship. Each and every one of us uh, carry guilt and shame into this room. We carry um, kind of that feeling of not quite being good enough of not quite meeting expectations father i pray that your grace would be real to us in those moments when we uh, find ourselves down That we would remember that that you've covered it that you've covered us father remind us that your expectation is not for perfection but you're not going to let us strive for less remind us that as uh, you raise standards in our lives, that you challenge us to be better in the way that we treat our spouse, our parents, our children. Rather, as you raise standards, that through Christ you have deepened grace, that we cannot exhaust it. God, I pray for this community. That we would be uh, kind of the forefront of revolutionary transformation in lives and in families. That it would just ripple outward from here. God, for every marriage in this room that isn't what uh, it's desired to be, Father, I pray that you would lean in, that you would draw close, that you would speak and reveal truth, that through the course of the weeks to come, as we get really practical about what this life looks like, God, that you would begin to do that work of establishing new normals, transforming homes, watching children grow up in a whole new way, watching families prosper. Ultimately, watching your gospel be lived out in lives, on display for others. Father, thank you for today and for the grace you've given us to be here to chase you and to chase your ideal for our life. God, we love you, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name, amen. The course of the next three songs, we're going to continue to worship, and while we do that, we take communion as a family.